welcome to Around the Table, a new source for Christ-centered teaching and conversations from an apostolic Christian perspective. In part two of this series on Bible translation, we trace the remarkable story of the English Bible from Tyndale to the King James Version and beyond. So we're transitioning after Wycliffe, we transition then into the modern English, even though that'll be at the early phases of it. That'll be happening over the next, starting in 1500s-ish. Well, what is important though, I think, is to understand that the English language has always been changing and changing pretty dramatically. So when we look at the next major English translation of Tyndale, mm-hmm. would that be an early placement then in the modern English Yes. Land. Yeah, very much so. And in fact, Tyndale and Shakespeare had a very profound effect on the development of modern English. And there were certain changes that were happening at the time in the English language that he captured and in some ways helped to perpetuate uh, into the into the later centuries. Yeah. So, when we're talking about the impact, here you said Tyndale's impact on the English language was profound. His impact on... English Bible translation is similarly profound. Right. Because of his translation work, he was put to death. He was actually executed by the church. But his translation was immensely popular. It was a translation, again, into the people's common language that they appreciated. And because of the printing press now, they could distribute tens of thousands of these copies. He did not translate it into a high flute in English, into an elite English. He purposely wanted it in a language, again, not street language, not gutter language, but he wanted it in a language that was accessible to anybody. Now, he understood that most people would be hearing it, right? It's still not reading it because most people are not literate. But still, he wanted it so that even as they heard it, they would, they would understand it. And, you know, it was, it was actually, it became essentially illegal. The, the, the church, the state tried to squash it out, but it was impossible. People loved it, and it went all over the place. And, and so the seed of that translation actually flows through the next mm-hmm. series of translations to things that we're familiar with today. Right. And so that's the, the common underpinning. And I don't want to race through that, but it feels like that tension of the people desiring to hear the word and wanting that access to it, and then the church desiring to provide a degree of control to make sure that the elements that they wanted mm-hmm. to be emphasized, it felt like there was this back and forth that was going yeah. on after Tyndale, where you would have a church-approved translation followed by a popular translation and back and forth. Mm -hmm. Is that an okay Mm -hmm. way to describe that? Yeah, absolutely. So, originally the the stance of the church was you can't have that Bible out there like that. Then then they realized that that was, you know, the cat was out of the bag and these Bibles are all over the place. So, rather than saying you can't have it, they would say, okay, you can have it, but we're going to, have a better translation, one that we approve of, in the mode that we want you to access it. So, what we'll do is we'll come up with our own translation that would meet their own specifications and desires. And then the second thing that they try to do is print it in a format that would it would be very difficult for people to carry around and distribute. So, they would print it in thick, thick Bibles that were heavy, and then they would actually, oftentimes, they actually chain them to the pulpit of a church. If you wanted to have access to the Bible, oh, sure, you can have access to the Bible. Come to the church, and the priest will open it <laughs> and share the Bible. Standing there with you, he'll share the Bible with you, right? Okay, so the church sort of makes a concession. We will tr- we'll let the Bible be translated into the common language, but we'll control that. The thing is, is Tyndale did such a remarkable job 
that when the people who were commissioned by the church to translate the Bible into English in a way that would be acceptable to the church, when they sat down to translate, they used Tyndale as their base. So you can go, and we won't do this because it would take forever, but we can go to the, all the translations. There have been hundreds of translations since Tyndale. But when you go, especially in, this, in, the, in the next couple centuries, when you go all the translations, most of them are deeply indebted to Tyndale. Most of them use Tyndale as the base and then make changes that they think the church w- would want to see. So Tyndale had an enormous influence for even till today because the King James is largely Tyndale. So there are several things that go into the King James Version that I think are important to know. One of them is they were actually supposed to use what is called the Bishop's Bible as their base. So when they were when they were commissioned, these 45-plus translators commissioned by the king to translate the Bible by King James, they the king told them to use the Bishop's Bible as their base, right? So we kind of start from there and then make changes as you see, see necessary. The interesting thing is, is that the Bishop's Bible was largely Tyndale, okay? <laughs> Which is why the King James Version is largely Tyndale. But when they made changes, they actually had original Greek texts and they had German text, French text, Italian text. They had Jerome's Latin Vulgate. They had other translations of the Bible into English from the past century since, since Tyndale. So they had all these things available to them and they used all these different manuscripts in ascertaining what is the best translation that would reflect the current English usage of 1611. We can't forget uh, one of the purposes of the 1611 translation, the King James translation, was to make it accessible to the people 100 years after Tyndale, right? So, um, so it reflects changes in the English language. Since Tyndale, they had found other older probably slightly more reliable Greek manuscripts than what Tyndale had available to him. So now we got to go back to where we talked about towards the beginning of this podcast, where we said that you can kind of create a family tree or a genealogy where you can chronicle the development of errors made in the text. So when, if you and I had the same manuscript, same Greek manuscript, and we're copying it, you would make a little bit different errors than I would make. Okay, so now somebody copying copying your text would probably replicate the errors you made. People copying my text would be re- replicating the, cop- the errors that I made. And so out of that, we get these different genealogies, these different branches of the family tree that reflect the errors that you and I originally made. These are called text families. By the time you get to King James translators, they're finding other texts that shed a slightly different light on what Paul would have actually written or Luke would have actually written, right? So they have a little bit, a few different texts that they're using in translating the King James, but it's still largely Tyndale and that sort of thing. So the King James translation inspired by Tyndale, tapping into the best understanding of the day. Mm Mm-hmm. And then with a focus on how does it sta- sound, the beauty in the sound, mm-hmm. in the way it comes mm-hmm. across mm-hmm. so that it can really resonate. Right. We as a church love the KGV. It's a good translation. And for many generations, it has united us. We're glad that we're able to use it as our pulpit Bible. So I'm going to transition to a side point here. 
mm-hmm. um, and another set of issues possibly. So, as they were going through these translations leading up to the King James and mm-hmm. with the bishops, and then they were doing a revision of it for the King James, the English language itself is continuing to adjust through this period. Right. And there was adjustment on the way the English language is being being used. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, the King James translators needed to take into account those adjustments and decide how to step into them or defer navigating through them. Right. I don't know what comes to your mind first if you're trying to describe it to someone else, but our appreciation for using thee and thine in expression. So, that was something that was in the mix that Mm -hmm. they needed to to think about at the time. Right, right. And that came largely from Tyndale. The thee and thou versus you sort of thing was even in the time of Tyndale going out of usage. Uh, the average person on the street would probably not use that kind of language unless with reference to cultural superiors. So we're dealing with a very hierarchical society. So if I'm talking to you, an elder, I would use the word you. If I'm talking to a friend, I would use thee or thou. Now, you notice it's actually the opposite of what we think of it, right? We think of it as you use the and now for somebody above me. It was actually the opposite. The reason why Tyndale used the and thou in his translation was because the actual genesis of the and thou versus you has to do with the plural versus the singular. So, in, in Middle English, you have thou being a singular referring to a single person, whereas you referring to multiple people. So, if I walked into a room, I could actually differentiate between am I talking to the whole group or am I talking to the person, to one person individually. By saying, if I'm talking to the whole group, I would say, um, you all need to do this. Whereas, if I wanted to single somebody out, I would say, thou needest to do this. Right? And so, it was a plural versus singular. We don't have that in the English language. In fact, he was going out in the time of Tyndale as well. But he retained it for this reason. Greek also has a plural versus singular you. And so, he wanted to retain the original Greek plural versus singular. And so, he used the and thou versus you as a means of distinguishing was Jesus talking to all his disciples or to one in particular, as an example, right? So, he included that. It would have been a little bit strange even at his time in Tyndale. So, now you have the King James translators and they're basically using Tyndale as their base and they decide to leave it in there, even though even then it was a bit archaic at the time King James. But it does, it does reflect that plural versus singular usage. So, what the usage means is if you read thee, thou, we're reading singular you. Right. We read you, you're reading or plural ye. you, yeah. or ye, mm-hmm. you're reading yeah. the plural. And it's not making any statement about hierarchy right. in that use. Right. That is not why Tyndale used it. So, yep. that's what's yep. going on there. And then… We encounter the the saith and the drinketh, which also appear to be in transition at this point. It was. It's, that's a Middle English tor- sort of thing. What is interesting, by the 1600s, by the time of King James, people probably weren't speaking that way, but it was still being written that way. I find it intriguing that there's good reason to believe that when the original readers of King James encountered the eth endings, they read it as s. So instead of so it would be written speaketh, but they would say speaks. They would actually say it in a different way that it was actually written, uh, because it really was kind of going out at that time. 
Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. We recognize the success of the King James and how popular it is and how long it's, it's mm-hmm. lasted. So we know that because mm-hmm. we have the advantage of history. But if we step back to the time of the King James coming out, it wasn't popular on contact, was it? It wasn't. It wasn't. The Bible that was immensely popular was the Geneva Bible. And that was one that was people were not, again, not supposed to use. You can get in trouble for using the Geneva Bible. But it was it was a good translation. Again, largely Tyndale, largely Tyndale Bible. Uh, but it was one that the, the, the church, the king, did not want people to use. One reason why you had the King James translation is to try to push out the Geneva Bible, to, to squash the usage. We'll give them a better one, one that fits the needs of the king, frankly, to be honest with you. Uh, one of the reasons for the King James Version is to, is to satisfy the king. He had certain political purposes, uh, wanted to unite his kingdom and, and solve political conf- conflict. And so he saw a new translation as a way of kind of bringing people together and, and establishing a uniformity. And, you know, we all move forward and, together in this, in our religion and so forth. Uh, and so he wanted to he, – he saw the Geneva Bible as anti-monarchical actually, as too critical of monarchs, too, too critical of kings. And so he, he commissioned the, the, what came to be called the King James Version. But when it first hit the streets, people didn't really like it. It was not immediately popular. There's actually a story behind how the King James became so popular. And part of it had to do with the king actually granted a monopoly – to promote the, the, the this new version of the Bible, so it became economically advantageous to just print the King James version of the Bible, and then in later years, the Geneva Bible was slandered by a later king. Uh, so, for economic and political reasons, then the King James slowly grew in popularity, and it was a process. It took a long time before. The King James Version was became, was really the dominant, the English version of the Bible. So it's interesting how those journeys go. And, and as we hear it, so you've, we've used multiple names here. We've talked about uh, Tyndale, the Geneva Bible, the Bishop's Bible, and the King James, each as if they're a singular thing. Mm-hmm. But each of those Bibles had multiple versions of them, including yeah. the King James. Yeah. So one of the interesting things about Bible translations is oftentimes the translator would actually say, and this is this is true in the case of King James. If you read the length, if you read the lengthy introduction, they expressed a sentiment that was common among translators, and that is, we are trying for the best translation for our time, and we recognize that we are we are leaning heavily on the work of people who've come before us, and we recognize that people after us we'll probably be able to improve on what we're doing. And that actually proved true. As you said, most of these Bibles actually go through multiple printings, multiple editions. The King James Version, depending on how you count it, the King James Version itself was went through levels of revision uh, up until the late 1700s. And, that, and that, was, that would have been perfectly acceptable and even expected by the original King James translators. But that humility in attitude mm-hmm. and in approach – is actually another good principle for us to recognize. Yes. yes. But in the coming years, one of the, the things that happened with the King James or coincident with it was an even greater demand for Bibles. In the English-speaking world, you have a huge wave of revivals in the 1700s that scholars call the Great Awakening. And this stimulates, tremendously stimulates interest in the Bible and demand for the Bible. 
by the time of the Great Awakening in the 1700s, there's really only one translation on the block now, and that's the King James, by default. And so that one goes out in, in heavy form. Then you have the Second Great Awakening in the 1800s, which does the exact same thing, promotes the Bible. You have Bible societies in the 1800s. They determine in their heart and mind they're going to get a Bible into the hand of every person, every English-speaking person, at least in, the, in North America. And so, again, King James Version goes out in mass quantities. So we have, as we get to this place in, in history, there is some awareness that the English language has continued to move on. Uh, the the right. match is less good mm-hmm. than it had been. Right. And additional sources are available too. Exactly. So additional texts are now visible. Yeah. And so they believe that they could provide a better, more accessible translation of the Bible. And so in 1885, you have what comes out as the revised version. This is a, largely a British effort. Later, some American scholars would provide an American, an American English version translation called the American Standard Version. But by then, so an interesting thing has happened by then, and that is the King James Version had gone from being a, a translation promoted by the king that had sort of, through these various historical factors, become dominant in the English-speaking world. It had gone from that to being, well, this is the Word of God, and you can't mess with the Word of God. Right? So, when so the, let me just play that back. Mm-hmm. So you're saying the translation itself the translation. is being associated to be the Word of God, and any other translation right. isn't by inference. Right. By default, and this is what, this is what I'm trying to re- re- emphasize here, it was by default. It wasn't the original intent of the translators. It wasn't understood that way for the first century of its existence, that it is the, the only legitimate English translation. That was not the original thing. By the end of the 1800s, when you had the revised version, people had become, had come to assume, because that's all they had, that the King James Version was the only legitimate English translation of the Bible. And so, by default, people have sort of come to assume the King James Version is the only one. If we looked into those translations, the revised version or the ASV, we would be seeing largely Tyndale again. <laughs> largely Tyndale again. Because they actually used, Tyndale, used the King James as their base, and the King James was largely Tyndale. And so, the RV is largely Tyndale. So, Fred, we've been in this rich history of Bible translations that have led us up to the, the mid-1900s, through the 1900s. If we, if we look at the last 50, 70 years, what kind of things stand out in more recent translations? So, I would say probably in the last 75 years, there have been several major moments in the history of the Bible translation into English. And one of those is the Revised Standard Version, the RSV, which came out in the early 1950s. This was, again, another effort to bring the Bible into a more current English language and also to take into account some new finds, including the the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, for the Old Testament. And so the RSV came out in the early 1950s. It was well-received by most scholars, especially initially. But for reasons that we don't necessarily get into, there was a concern among some conservative Christians, especially conservative evangelicals. They had a suspicion that the RSV reflected some liberal Protestant tendencies. And so they decided to commission their own translation of the Bible. And that one is the NIV, the New International Version, which comes out first comes out in the late 1970s. 
And this translation is actually was then intended to be a conservative alternative to the Revised Standard Version. By the end of the 1900s, though, you have these same people who respect the NIV, but who believe that just in the last 50 years, there's been enough changes, last 30 years, enough changes in the English language that they want another alternative, conservative alternative to the RSV. And so we have the ESV, the English Standard Version. So that comes out in the early 2000s. The, the ESV and the RSV, they would say that they follow in the tradition of Tyndale. If you read the ESV, it reads very closely to the King James, so very closely to Tyndale. NIV was a little bit more of a, of a I should say, more original translation. Um, and so it sounds a little bit less like Tyndale than the ESV does. Uh, but both of them were attempts to bring the English language Bible more uh, into the common language of our own moment. We can anticipate more translations coming. Uh, absolutely. In fact, so here's an interesting thing. Chances are, if you have a Bible app, <laughs> these translations on our Bible apps are getting, are getting modified, corrected. For all we know, there's somebody right now making a change to the Bible translations that I have on my phone. We are not talking major revisions. Nothing remotely close to doctrinal changes being made, you know, to the, to the core doctrines of the Christian faith. These are, in some cases, correcting typos, or these are uh, adjustments made, we think this sounds better, or we just think this just slightly reflects the meaning of the original a little bit better. Right, and because of these are computerized now, it goes out, and whenever your app is updated, boom, it's updated, and you don't even realize it's happening. But the, but the attempt, and this is the thing that I think is extremely important, the attempt is to get into the hands of the reader the most accurate translation that provides the, the fullest conveyance of the meaning of the Word of God. So much so that if we misspell the word, then we're going back to it and we're going to correct it and send it out on the next update to the app. With the realization that five years from now, we'll have to, you know, we'll have to do it again and again and again. You know. so, so let's think through that passion a little bit together, just as we're focusing on what is it that is the core, the key, the central message of Bible translations. First, that the gospel is preached mm -hmm. and made available and it's communicated mm -hmm. in ways that people can hear it and understand it, that lives are transformed. Yes. And that people come to the knowledge of the truth. And I think there's there, there's a way of breaking that into two pieces, at least. One is it has to be accurate. And then second, it has to be accessible. How do we convey the fullest, richest, most accurate meaning of the Word of God, both in terms of its, its accuracy and in terms of its ability to be read and understood? And it feels like there's a, a subtext of the accessibility part, which is this depth and mm -hmm. resonance mm -hmm. and speaking to us, to our hearts as we right. hear it. We, we talked about it as beauty and richness and depth, but those thoughts are an element of what makes a translation something that resonates, mm -hmm. that we can hold on to, that, that comes to mind. Right. I think a great example of that is the 23rd Psalm. Frankly, I needed to have some of those verses explained what they mean, <laughs> right? But... I think for myself, until the day I die, I'm reading it in King James because it's just poetic. 
it's just gorgeous language and that that's it's it's and it's very compelling and 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 just meaningful to to the reader so thankful to god that he's inspired people and gifted people to translate the word for us that we yeah. can hear it today in a yes. way that resonates and and provides for us and for others we have the truth in front of us we do and, and we're given the opportunity to to read it to live it and to share it thanks for listening around the table is a production of onward media a communications ministry of the apostolic christian church of america